Welcome to Securiosity for November 22nd. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. A top DHS cyber official is leaving the agency. We will break down what it means for 2020. In our interview, we talk with Rupert Cook from Immersive Labs. We talk about why his company thinks it's got a winning model in gamifying cybersecurity training. The VC money is flowing once again. We will break down a long list of raises in our business segment, which actually features a guest appearance from Dikembe Mutombo. Yes, you heard that right, and we will get into it. I swear it'll make sense later on. But first, let's talk about all the news that happened this week. Jeanette Manfra has for years been an important ambassador for DHS's cybersecurity work, representing the department at hacking conferences, testifying before Congress on election security, and raising awareness about supply chain threats in industry. She is now preparing to leave her post with an internal announcement circulating this week. Manfra's replacement as assistant director of the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency will have big shoes to fill as the department looks to continue its work and heighten its watch with the 2020 election right around the corner. Greg, what else do you know about this announcement? So I know that uh, Jeanette is leaving government to head to the private sector. Um, I'm not sure exactly where yet, and I don't think that that will happen anytime soon. Um, she said uh, in an interview with TechCrunch that she was going to take some time off to be with her family and totally uh, understand why she would want to do that after you know helping stand up SZA and get it running. But um, yeah, as far as what it means for 2020, like we said at the top, um, look, uh, uh, there's a lot of people working on uh, election security, and I've seen a lot of chatter around Twitter and around town that, you know, this really leaves DHS at a loss uh, for their efforts. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, look, Jeanette was very, very important. She led uh, a lot of efforts, especially, and and helped with a bunch of efforts around election security, but she laid that groundwork. Like that groundwork is there for somebody to follow up and and follow on. So the, the, the hard work has been done. And the groundwork that she laid was was very, very vital. And whoever it is that follows in her footsteps, I think, has a really good uh, uh, platform and operational roadmap for how to protect the 2020 election. And, I mean, Chris Krebs is still there as well. And uh, Chris was, you know, Jeanette was uh, Chris's deputy. So um, it, it's not like the entire agency has seen sort of like this brain drain to the private sector. Right. Like, look, the groundwork has been laid. Uh, Jeanette did a great job in in doing that. And I, I think the efforts will continue unabated. And I think most people in these positions think about national security first. And my guess, if she wasn't comfortable with where it was heading and, and who else could fill the job, she probably wouldn't leave. Right. I, I, I think that she probably saw all, all, you know, all of the efforts that they have done and realized like, okay, th- there is a good uh, foundation here. Yeah. Uh, there, there are people around me that uh, I trust to get the job done if they're here. So uh, I, I fully trust in them and I, I don't get why they wouldn't. I know some of them and th- they are really committed to protecting election security and, and doing all of the other things that uh, CISA has uh, been involved with over the past right. year. So- um, you're right. I think that there was uh, a lot of thought put into the mission at first, and then she looked around and said, okay, I'm, I'm comfortable, and this is a good time for me to leave. Yeah. 
The United Nations passed a Russian-backed cybercrime resolution Monday at the United Nations building in New York. It went through over calls from the U.S. that the measure would hamper efforts to root out internet crime and amid warnings from dozens of human rights and internet policy groups that the resolution is actually an effort by the Kremlin to expand its influence over the web. Critics warn that the measure is so vague it could lead to the criminalization of ordinary online activities that journalists and human rights groups rely on, such as the use of encrypted chat apps. It's the latest Russian effort at the UN level to influence global norms in cyberspace. Jen, do you feel comfortable with Russia calling the shots here? Not even a little bit. I'm really sort of confused on why um, anything um, Russian-led when it comes to cybercrime um, and enforcing laws would would pass the UN. It it just seems like the nation state actors often come from Russia. Yeah, um, it seems to me that also. I mean, there are a lot of smart people at the UN. Obviously, if you're involved in these votes, you are tapped into what's going on on a global basis. And we've seen what Russia has done on the. A cyber criminal level. So why would you want to turn over any sort of legal apparatus or, or norms building to right. uh, a, a country that supports its cyber crime underground like that? I am really confused that there was such support for this level of, of norm building on, on Russia's side of things. Really, really confusing. I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that this is a reality. I am too, you know, as you said a little bit ago that, you know, a lot of smart people around the UN. So hopefully um, they know something we don't know. I, I hope so. I don't know. Maybe it's it's some kind of reverse psychology where they are bringing Russia into the fold more and they think they'll pacify uh, Russia's militant interests, I guess, in, in creating these cyber norms and bringing them in and actually having them operate more on a global basis and reaching a consensus. I, I, I would imagine that that's an idea being kicked around at the UN. I also think that that's incredibly naive. I, I, I mean- I, I think that Russia is just trying to exert influence here. I don't think the 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 UN is going to pacify Russia in in any way to to operate on a on a global basis. Russia is going to try to build the global basis more so than the global basis kind of getting Russia to come into the fold. So U.S. authorities on Tuesday announced the arrest of a 20 year old DePaul University student, Thomas Ozaduzinski, for allegedly providing material support to the Islamic State by writing a computer script to boost the terrorist group's propaganda. Ozahu Dzinski also told FBI agents that he was in the process of creating a custom system for ISIS members. According to a criminal complaint, his lawyer denied his client broke any laws. Greg, what else do you know about his system? Um, Yeah, so in the indictment, the thing that everybody has pulled out this week was this guy was trying to build a custom Linux distribution that he was going to uh, push to uh, ISIS soldiers. And everybody has said, look, I am not a a Linux expert at all, but the, the type of Linux that he was going to be using was the Gen 2 Linux custom distribution or something like that. And that got laughed at like... Pretty much uh, across the board. Um, uh, just I, I, I again, I'm not a, a big Linux user, so I don't know the different distributions and what's good and what's not. But if the greater cybersecurity community is laughing at the um, Linux distribution that he was trying to stand up for ISIS, 
it's clear that this kid did not really understand the the gravity of right. what he was doing. It's laughable in its idiocy that that followed here. The fact that he was trying to be covert and clearly wasn't being covert and clearly didn't have the skills to be some type of like super ISIS jihad hacker. Um, it, I mean, it's it's it, it would be more laughable if it wasn't so serious of uh, because of the groups he was trying to affiliate with. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's sort of sad and, and goes to show how um, easy it is to influence um, someone that young. Yeah. You know, a college kid turns around and all of a sudden is starting to write Python scripts and Gen 2 Linux distributions for ISIS. It's, uh, I don't know how you get there. I, I, I just don't. But uh, it happened. He was talking to the FBI and now, you know, this uh, poor soul's in jail. So don't <laughs> don't write code for ISIS. How's that? That makes sense. So more cybersecurity companies are stepping up their efforts to defend against stalkerware, surveillance software that's often linked to domestic abuse. The Coalition Against Stalkerware announced Tuesday is comprised of antivirus companies Kaspersky and Malwarebytes, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and nonprofits dedicated to stopping this form of personal spying. The coalition says it will provide nuanced advice for victims of stalkerware and offer a platform for best practices on ethical software development. Jen, this sounds like a fantastic idea. It is a fantastic idea, right? I think um, there are so many victims out there and, and they're not really sure what to do. So it's it's great to have a place to get advice, um, an obvious place to get advice from people who know what they're doing. Yeah, I, I, I think the advice is a big, big important part of this because- Look, stalkerware uh, exists, and but you know, there's also the ability to use the devices that we all use on a regular basis to perform stalking as well. I mean, look, there's a GPS in every phone. We use it on maps. We use it on location services uh, mm-hmm. all the time. So, it, it, and you you give credentials to somebody in a relationship. That relationship goes sour and turns violent. And uh, suddenly there's, um, you know, the the use of Apple Maps or the use of a workout app or uh, the use of any sort of um, like any sort of transportation app or anything that just maps movement becomes stalkerware. So I think that the advice thing is is something that is very, very crucial here because – Look, the, the the programs that are out there that are dedicated to just stalkerware, like that, that's just too obvious. Like, if somebody's actually going to stalk somebody, they're going to use the means that they have. I, I remember hearing a story a couple of weeks ago about how somebody, uh, there was a case where uh, a domestic abuser followed somebody via the app that came with like Land Rovers, like followed the 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 path of a Land Rover through the the app that you can download to remote start yeah. cars. I mean, obviously Land Rover isn't thinking that this is going to be used to stalk people, but it clearly can be. So uh, good that we have these foundations in order to give out advice and root out the bad software that is well, out we, there. We um, saw a pitch from a startup, um, you know, probably going back, you know, five, six, seven, eight years um, and it basically was stalkerware, right? I mean, it was an app in which um, always tracked where I was. So it would announce that, um, you know, I spent this long at the gas station and this long at the gym and and give like locations and put me on the map. 
Um, and it was just in the, the intent was how many hours did you spend at work? Um, but just insane when I saw that to think, wow, every single thing I do. And of course there's probably like 20 apps on my phone right now that provide that information to people. Um, but it just seemed over the top if I don't really want people to know where I am, but that's true. Like, right. My car, um, tells me where I'm, where it's parked. Um, and it certainly tracks where I go. So it's easy to be stalked. So security vulnerabilities and personal voice assistant technology have made it possible for hackers to take photos and videos of users or track their location without a victim's knowledge, according to new findings. Flaws in several Android devices opened holes in the Google Assistant and Samsung's Bixby, according to research published Tuesday by the Israeli security vendor Checkmarks. The issues in Google's Pixel brand of phones and Samsung's Galaxy series have allowed outsiders to record two-way conversations, silence the shutter on phones' cameras, and collect GPS location based on devices' metadata. Greg, we don't go a week without hearing about an Android issue, do we? Yeah, and hey, uh, a, a perfect example of what we were just talking about with the stalkerware. Look how easy it is to turn an innocuous piece of technology in your phone to something that can be used to surveil people. I mean, this is exactly what we were talking about. I mean, it really goes to show that this is even in the Google Pixel phone, and, and that is supposed to be one of the more secure Android devices because Google can just send you the updates a, as it is. And look, this hole was closed too, but again, just goes to show how easy it really is to find a bug that can turn your phone into a malicious collection device. I, I mean, super easy, right? As I said in, in a minute ago, right? Like there's probably 20 apps on my phone that are collecting things. Um, about me that could easily be hacked into or sent to somebody else. It, it, I mean, it just really goes to show that you really do need to pay a lot of attention to the security uh, apparatus in your phone. Just if you, not even if you're a security, you know, savant. If if this is something that everybody needs to be aware of, how easy it is to use the apps that. Everybody uses the the hardware that comes in your phone and, and really turn it against you. So state-sponsored cyber attacks against any single nation could soon provoke a global response if a growing number of officials around the world have their way. As the Pentagon has experimented with new authorities allowing U.S. Cyber Command to be more offensive in cyberspace, key officials have suggested there is a groundswell of support for multinational countermeasures in the digital age. Thomas Wingfield, the incoming Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy, told CyberScoop that alliances could be more successful in deterring hackers and striking back when they infiltrate sensitive networks. I think that's a more effective way to solve the problem, and I think that there's a general direction of international law, he said. Jen, do you think this is a smart strategy? I mean, I think it's interesting, right? And I and I don't know that I like the idea of a, a global response. Um, you know, certainly it puts everyone sort of on the same page. But, you know, I, I think there's certainly, you know, going to be a time um, when the U.S. looks like a state-sponsored cyber attack on somebody, right? I mean, we assume, I don't, I don't really know, I assume we also go after the enemy um, in much the same way that the state-sponsored comes after us. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm mixed feelings about it. I think that it's really just following the lines of traditional warfare. I mean, think about, um, what has gone on just with any military conflict that we've been in, in the past 
20 years. We've always looked for, quote unquote, a coalition. We want our allies to be involved too. I mean, obviously we could talk about, you know, the the efficacy of those uh, operations, but it, whether they were complete failures or not, um, they still relied on allies and they still rely, relied on coalition. So I don't understand why we haven't already been like this on the cyber warfare front. It just seems like the way that things have worked in traditional warfare. So why wouldn't they carry over to cyber warfare if there's uh, you know a big problem with some country attacking other countries, you would think that allies would get together and go after them by any means necessary. I mean, maybe. Um, I guess we'll we'll see how well it works going forward. Look, the, the internet is global. So uh, I, I totally think that the, the response to any sort of, of crime or cyber warfare, if need be, th- there would be some type of like agreeable combined response. The country's biggest voting equipment vendors in September asked for ideas on how to organize a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program. Companies in the field responded, but so did Senator Amy Klobuchar, who is one of the most outspoken voices on election security. In a four-page letter to an association that is established in the CVD program, the senator told the vendors they must work out reasonable, time-limited, and researcher-friendly terms for disclosure. She pushed vendors to come further out of their shell by welcoming hackers of all stripes, who want to improve security. Greg, it's interesting to see someone from Congress weighing in. Yeah, this is great. Um, uh, this was totally out of left field because this is a very uh, distinct RFI that went out. I mean, really, there are only a handful of companies that would reply to this. You'd have BugCrowd, HackerOne, and Synac, uh that would reply to this. But to have a uh, senator's office say, hey, Obviously, we're not competing for this business, but when you do look to sign up somebody for this, here are the things that you need to watch out for. I mean, this is smart. This is just uh, smart legislating or not even legislating. This is just smart outreach on Capitol Hill's part. I wish there were more people that could do this, but um, one is better than zero, and I'm glad that this exists, and I hope that uh, the voting machine vendors take what is in that letter and take it to heart when they go out to stand up a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program. So the nonprofit Center for Class Action Fairness, which advocates on behalf of consumers involved in class action lawsuits, said in a court filing Tuesday that the Equifax settlement, which proponents value at $700 million, flunks federal requirements for fairness and adequacy. This is the same agreement that Equifax said would include up to $425 million for customers who were affected by the data breach, which compromised information on 147 million Americans. After suggesting individual consumers could be paid up to $125 under certain conditions or accept free credit monitoring, Equifax introduced new requirements forcing Americans to prove they had credit monitoring in place at the time of the breach. Otherwise, they would be paid nothing. Jen, are you shocked by this at all? I am. I'm not really sure why um, we need to have credit monitoring to me basically be given um, a payout from Equifax, right? It's not making us whole. Um, It's their fault. Um, And quite frankly, Equifax has my data, whether or not I have credit monitoring, and they're responsible to protect me. I'm I'm surprised by well I shouldn't say I'm I'm surprised by that because they're going to try to weasel out of of paying anything in this class action lawsuit the most that they can sure but I'm I'm not surprised also that 
there's somebody out there saying, wait a minute, this settlement doesn't really pass the stink test. Like, uh, of course, that was the way this was going to be. This has been a total colossal failure from beginning to end. So why would this be any different? Like, this is just par for the course so far. This is just such a stain on the way we handle data collectively as uh, a population that it's just, it's awful. It's just absolutely awful. And this is another bullet point to show that this has been awful. And it's clear that nothing good has come from this at any point, absolutely any point. So on the business side of things, a a ton of smaller raises, but companies were getting their money. Let's get into it. So CyberCube Analytics, a San Francisco-based cyber risk analyst company for the insurance industry, raised $35 million in Series B funding. HSC and Bermuda and Forge Point Capital led the round. Cognito, based in Palo Alto, California, and Israel, they're uh, another small cybersecurity startup, got $18 million in Series A funding. Lightspeed Ventures led the round, was joined by Sorensen Ventures. ZecOps, a San Francisco-based cybersecurity firm, raised $10.2 million in seed funding. Investors include CEAS Investments, Evolution Equity, KPN, Plug and Play, and Stormbreaker. Abnormal Security, a San Francisco-based cloud email security platform, raised $24 million in Series A, and that round was led by Greylock. Uh, Prevalion, which if you remember Prevalion, we've talked uh, to some of their experts before on this podcast. Uh, they received a strategic investment from Legion Capital Partners. The amount of that deal was not disclosed. Insights, a New York City-based threat intelligence company, raised $30 million in Series D funding. That round was led by Kumra Capital. Corsa Security, an Ottawa, Ontario-based scaling network security platform, raised $11 million in funding. That was led by Roadmap. Banyan Security, San Francisco-based provider of cloud-centric secure remote access solutions, closed $17 million in funding. And cybersecurity company Checks, they do a lot with ad fraud, closed $16 million in Series B funding from Battery Ventures and Mizma Ventures. And if anybody has some spare time, go check out Check's website. Some of their prior funding has seemingly gone to Dikembe Mutombo to do some marketing for them. He's listed as their chief block officer, which is absurd and hilarious to me. Um, but yeah, so they they got around. They have obviously have a strong uh, marketing campaign. But um, again, what else jumps out to you here? Man, you know, it's, well, I mean, Prevalian, obviously, it's 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 local to us, um, so it's really exciting to see them um, continue um, the round, I guess, from Allegis um, that they announced, um, I don't know, a few weeks ago, a month ago, um, is interesting. Um, you know, I still like to see, like, the seed stage companies, right? So SecOps out of San Francisco raising 10.2, um, that's sort of, like, the stage that I think is always really interesting because oftentimes it's something that we haven't seen yet before. Um, and when we're talking about the Series B and, and sometimes the Series A, right, it's it's a lot of like Me Too's. We're seeing a lot of, um, you know, maybe a dozen other companies in that space. Um, so to me, a little bit less interesting. Um, but that said, I am a seed and early stage investor, right? So of course, I'm going to like the the seed stage guys. Yeah. Um, you know, we talk about consolidation and I was having some conversations uh, earlier this week about how, you know, I, I think consolidation is going to continue into 2020. But then on the other end of things, it seems like companies are still being spun up. I mean, uh, whether it's the cloud-based security or threat intelligence, 
it, it just seems like on the back end that these companies are still being stood up and still getting uh, money to support them. You know, and I think I think we're going to continue to see both trends, right? I think we have um, what is a growing problem, right? And so I think um, we'll continue to see more and more startups as the years ahead go by. But, you know, we're going to have to see consolidation too. Just looking at all of this, it's it's just so, it also just goes to show that it, it doesn't really matter what it is, whether it's cybersecurity or network ops or retail or whatever it is, data, if you're sitting on data, you're, you're going to get VC funding. Like that's just the way it is, whether it's data collection or, you know, just use of data to help protect other enterprises, it's it's still, I mean, it's almost a cliche at this point that if you have data, you're going to get paid, but still at the same time, I mean, this list goes to show that, 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 that adage just remains true. I mean, yeah, you know, and, and also I think um, we're seeing a, a lot of cybersecurity stuff right now um, because typically it's really hard to get a deal done um, between Thanksgiving and New Year's. Um, you know, just like in the summer, we tend to see things slow down. Um, so it makes sense that you see a lot of um, deals having closed this week. Um, I think we'll see a, a, a slowdown through December. That makes sense. I can understand why that would be that way. Nobody wants to be worrying about the lifeblood of their company while trying to have a glass of eggnog or just relaxing for the end of the year. Um, yeah, no, it makes sense to me. I don't plan on closing any deals. So speaking of closing deals, we will talk to Rupert Cook, the CSO of Immersive Labs. Immersive Labs just closed a deal a few weeks ago, and Rupert will tell us what exactly he sees the company doing with the funding and why he thinks gamifying cybersecurity training is so important. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Rupert Cook, the Chief Strategy Officer behind Immersive Labs. Rupert, thanks for joining us today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Rupert, talk to us about the thought process behind Immersive Labs and what exactly is the thinking behind the platform? Well, the platform was started by uh, James Hadley, who was a uh, cyber instructor for GCHQ here in the UK, our version of your NSA. And he was in charge of teaching uh, cyber skills to new recruits. And he had a brain brain of moment at one point where uh, halfway into an eight-week um, classroom training course, he suddenly decided there had to be a better way of getting people skilled up in cyber. And he came up with Immersive Labs as the best possible way he could think of to get people excited about increasing their cyber skills and to allow them to learn on demand in a fun, gamified way um, to be able to complete challenges and increase their skills. So how do you make it more fun? Well, that's a really good question. Um, generally, you know, getting your skills up in cyber in, in traditional ways has been very boring. It's been very slow. It's been turning up to a training course, uh, sitting through maybe five days of something that was uh, put together a few months ago, and then getting the certificate at the end. We make it fun by allowing people to um, get to the platform from their browser without any delay. There are no plugins, no downloads. You're right in there. You can choose whatever skill you want to learn, or you can be assigned a series of exercises by your manager, and you can get right into it. These are bite-sized chunks of learning, which are all story-driven. They're based around an exciting story of how you're going to solve a challenge. And you have to use your initiative. You have to use a bit of lateral thinking, a bit of common sense, a bit of assistance to solve that challenge. 
you win points, you get a badge, you go up a leaderboard, uh, you can get bragging rights against your friends. So it is uh, genuinely pretty fun. So when you talk about the the leaderboard and the bragging rights, is that something that is just you know internally inside an enterprise? Or are you talking that you've actually stood up like a network, almost like you know Sony PlayStation does or Xbox does, where you're kind of ranking against everybody else that's using your platform? Well, we have a bit of both for our um, uh, paying customers, for our corporates and government departments, and and we have. Lots of big corporations, I suppose, that people like the banks, Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and government departments like here in the UK, we have the National Health Service and the police forces and so on. They want leaderboards where those are just internal. They want to rank uh, against each other. These can be grouped into departments so you can, you can compete against other people in your department as opposed to across the whole bank, for example. But we also have um, a series of free academies, which are uh, a subset of our main platform one of which is for university students across all sorts of different territories, including the US, where university students from anywhere can uh, get on the platform and increase their cyber skills and learn about cyber. And in those cases, they can see how their university is doing against uh, all the other universities. So it's pretty fun. So the platform, what does the platform look like for customers? How do, how do they use it? They uh, would just go in through a browser um, and they're looking at either if they've been set objectives by their manager, they will be shown, here's the next thing you need to do. Here's a selection of these exercises, which we call labs. And they can choose either to do them in the order they've been set them, or they can choose any order if they like, to learn about what they need to know. So this might be from very basics, introduction to cyber, you know, how to avoid phishing and so on, through to much more advanced things, um, learning tools like Snort or Yara or learning uh, techniques like reverse engineering malware. And I guess the the really kind of compelling content is when, once you've learned the tools and techniques, we have a series of um, uh, extended storylines, which I'll give you an example. We have an immersive bank, an immersive power station. We have immersive care series, where we have lots of episodes within that series, where if you do episode one, for example, in our banking series, you have to work out who the CEO of the bank is, what their password is, and various other credentials through looking at their social media. So we have an entire uh, imaginary bank online. We have the CEO's Twitter account and other social media. So you can start to get a picture of what they're looking at. They're being given questions that you have to find out this information. And when they found out that information, they can go on to the next episode where they use that information they found out to then, in the case of the banking series, to go onto a remote desktop put in the CEO's credentials, get into the bank and start doing more exciting things. So does that give you an idea? Sure does. And, you know, you've kind of hinted at it. Uh, who are some of your customers and what has the feedback been? So we, at the moment, we have over 100 um, blue chip corporations and quite a few government departments. So it's really the people with the most security people and who are proactive, who are innovative about scaling them up. So the customers I mentioned, Goldman Sachs was one of our first customers. Um, they have thousands of people using the platform. They have leaderboards, uh, both in the US and the UK. And we're finding, um, in terms of feedback, we're finding people from um, big banks like Goldman are using our platform on Friday nights. They're using them in the middle of the night over the weekend. So they can get them to the top of the leaderboard by Monday morning. So the feedback is this gives them what they want. It allows them to learn things 
exactly when they want to. So it's kind of on-demand, interactive, bite-sized, and they can prove they have the skills. Nice. And you most recently raised um, a $40 million round of funding. What are you using that for? So we, we completed that raise, as you say, a couple of weeks ago in order to do two things. We wanted to uh, increase the features of the platform. So we're going to invest in uh, more developers, more security professionals to um, build out the platform so that we have all sorts of things that generally the, the boards and the CISOs of, of big corporations want for reducing risk. We also want to grow out our sales marketing operation in North America. We have headquarters in Boston, which we started a few months ago. We're up to 10 people there now, but we need to grow out across um, North America pretty rapidly because the demand is so great there. We are getting inbound inquiries from corporations and government departments all over the US. And we want to be able to help them. So what do you think the platform uh, addresses in the grand scheme of things? You know, what's lacking in your mind in cybersecurity training today? And how is Immersive Labs sort of, you know, pushing the forward on what needs to be done when it comes to cybersecurity training? Yeah, so we, we think of the platform as a platform of two halves. And we, we have the two halves of it being addressing visibility and the other half being addressing velocity. So what's been missing is the visibility for management, for people who run security teams right up to the CISO or the CIO, to see what skills their people do have, to see how they compare against their industry average. So we talked about having leaderboards. We do have a cyber capability score, which is anonymized, but it shows where you are compared to other people in your industry, for example. It shows within the management tools, it shows who has done which labs, we have all the labs mapped against various frameworks, the MITRE ATT&CK framework, this NICE framework. So for example, against MITRE, we can show you where you're weak, where you're strong against different attack vectors. And even down to very granular, we can show, okay, in that particular attack vector, who was the last person to do those particular labs? Who's strong in those vectors? How many people have you got who know about that particular type of threat? And in some cases, if you haven't got anyone who's done any of those labs, well, that might be a weakness. You might want to fill that. So it's really giving the visibility for management on what the skills are, how strong the, the cyber workforce is, and, and therefore what their kind of human risk is within cyber. The, the other half that we've talked about is, is making it really fun to be able to get up your skills and to, to grow in terms of, if you're new into cyber, to develop a career path and objectives and so on uh, to get through it. I think the other thing that's, that's been right. missing is... How do you get into cyber in the first place? It's It's been traditionally a, a, a very kind of non-diverse workforce, and we're really trying to help with that. So I mentioned our academies. We have an academy for students. We have over 20,000 students at the moment signed up to our free academy, which, as I say, has got a subset of the labs. It gets you up to a, a level where you can get an entry-level job within cyber. We also have an academy for military veterans. We have an academy for the neurodiverse community. So we're really trying to provide opportunities for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get into cyber, wouldn't even think of doing it perhaps, and make it really fun for them and interesting to develop their skills and, and get a job. So let's talk about the stories. You said that you know the platform and the games really depend on stories. Can you give us an example of a story? What do those stories look like for the users? 
Yeah, so I, I, I touched on the, uh, the, the banking one. We have a, an immersive power station where the, the story is effectively that you're trying to track uh, the CISO of that power station and then get his credentials. We start off by um, he's left a boarding card around. So you have to find out various details about him and his destination and where he's staying. He's going on a trip and he's staying in a hotel. You have to then get through um, open source intelligence and a bit of uh, social engineering effectively. You have to work out his credentials. You have to gain access to the power station. And then you have to work out um, how to do a Modbus attack to bring down the power in the power station. And we actually have um, in the office here, we have a 3D printed model of a power station that in one of our labs, you're seeing the power station. And if you complete the challenge, you actually do get to turn out the lights on that power station. You see it happening. That turns on a, an emergency generator, which, which uh, shines on a particular code that you need to complete the series. So it gives you an idea of the sort of stories that we've got in there. That actually sounds really fun. So why is this just on a web browser and not like an app on my phone as well? We do have um, within our knowledge labs, they're available on the phone, on the iPad and so on. But because we're uh, spinning up virtual machines uh, in the cloud, it just wouldn't be practical to do that on the phone right at the moment. So, got it. You know, writing a cybersecurity training platform, obviously, you want to make sure that you take some of the lessons uh, that you're dispelling outward and use them inward. So, what does Immersive Labs do on a daily basis to protect itself? Well, that's a really good question. As you can imagine, we have uh, a number of some of the, the top guys in the world in security who have worked um, both red teamers, their pen testers, and people who've run security operations centers, who've done incident response. And the same experts that design our labs for customers are involved in designing our security policies. So we're both proactive and reactive. Um, we have the experience of offensive and defensive skills. So they are making sure that we are able to respond very, very quickly in, if there is a threat that comes along. We're, we're logging, monitoring, we're alerting. But we're also in the code, we're, we're building security into the code from the ground up. And we have labs on secure coding, and the people who write those labs are also defining how we do our coding. So we feel we're quite well protected. So, Rupert, we like to end every podcast on a random question. And a random question for you is what incredibly strong opinion do you have that is completely unimportant in the grand scheme of things? That's a, a really good question. A strong opinion I have um, is uh, about the value of meditation. Not important for this podcast at all as the security in any way, um, but we've just introduced um, guided meditations in our company, which you can do every morning on Tuesdays, which I think is a wonderful way of clearing your mind to uh, approach the day ahead and the week ahead. So I, I feel very strongly it's a great idea occasionally to just stop and think about nothing, and just clear your head. It really helps with uh, making clear decisions and uh, enjoying your week. I kind of agree with you there, Rupert. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, yeah, Thank you. Uh, really appreciate you hopping aboard, Rupert, and looking forward to what Immersive Labs does in the future. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So thanks again to Rupert for joining us. 
Uh, Jen, I, I know we were talking about uh, eggnog and Christmas earlier, but Thanksgiving's next week. I think we're going to take a week off to just uh, kick up our feet and enjoy some turkey and uh, let the uh, cyber deals come to us. Yeah, super, super exciting. What's your um, favorite Thanksgiving dish or tradition? Tradition? Um, I'm a big football guy. I'll be watching football, even though the games look terrible. Um, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll probably be watching football and sleeping. Okay. What about you? We go out um, and play. I mean, we've been doing it. My brother and I have been doing it since um, I was a little kid. We go and play a random round of Frisbee golf. It's the only time of year we play it, but we'll go out to Burke Lake and, and, and do that. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, everybody, whether it's football, frisbee golf, real golf, enjoy your time off and we will catch up with you in December. As always, stay curious.